This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Procedural Sedation and Analgesia in Children by Dr. Eric Fliegler. Hi, my name is Eric Fliegler. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician here at Boston Children's Hospital and co-director of the sedation service. I'm going to talk about procedural sedation and analgesia in children. I'm going to talk about the background for pediatric sedation, indications for procedural sedation, systems for maximizing safety, and the pharmacopoeia that's involved in pediatric sedation. Background of pediatric sedation. What constitutes pediatric sedation and analgesia? Well, it's been defined as the use of sedatives, analgesics, and or disassociative agents that are used to relieve anxiety and pain associated with diagnostic and therapeutic procedures. And the key thing is, this is all done while maintaining cardiorespiratory function. The most important parts of this is to remember that this is about relieving anxiety and pain. And so whether you're just dealing with somebody's pain with their anxiety or needing a full pediatric procedural sedation, all of the stuff that we're going to be talking about is relevant. This is probably the most important picture that I'll show during this presentation. What you see is a young child who is getting ready for a laceration repair. The key thing is to look at the details about what is going on. First, you'll notice that this patient is calm and relaxed. He's engaged in the activities, which is here, looking at a coloring book and pointing out different objects. You'll see that there is a doctor who is behind him who is in the process of injecting a numbing medication, yet the child does not seem distressed or anything else. What's going on here? Well, there are a few things that I would point out. First, the doctor has gone to lengths to make sure that he is out of the vision of the child. It's very easy when doing a laceration repair to be on one side of the child or the other, and they can see you directly. But if you have the opportunity to get directly behind the child, it is very difficult for them to see you, and therefore less anxiety provoking. Furthermore, the child is looking down. He's looking at the paper. Somebody is actively engaging the child. This can be accomplished in a number of ways, whether you're watching a movie, somebody's having a dialogue, reading a book, but the goal is to have them look somewhere else. Likewise, if you have a patient who's having a laceration repair of their chin, you could have somebody hold the book behind them so the child is forced to look up and away from that type of procedure. Second thing, if you look at the child's laceration, you'll notice that the skin surrounding it is pale. A topical analgesic has been applied that numbs the skin. So when the doctor goes ahead and starts their procedure, they're already at a very comfortable place. This is typically applied by having the medicine put in a cotton ball and attached to the skin for about 20 to 30 minutes. But one of the things that I like to do is have the parent themselves paint the medicine in. You get a really nice saturation of the medicine into the wound itself, and you desensitize the child from being touched in that area. If their mom and dad has been touching it for the last 20 minutes, it's okay for the doctor to touch in that area too. The next thing you'll notice is that the syringe has a very small needle. There's a 30 gauge needle, which is the smallest that we have. The smaller the needle, the less pain associated with it. As a matter of fact, with a 30 gauge needle, often they won't feel it going in at all, especially after the topical numbing medicine has been applied. The next thing to know is that the lidocaine has been buffered. Lidocaine by nature is acidic. By putting in a one to 10 portion of bicarb, you can remove the acidity and decrease the burning sensation. In addition, when you're instilling the medicine, it's very important to put it in very slowly. The distension of the tissue can uh, activate nerve fibers, and by going in slowly, you'll cause less pain as well. 
Another thing you can do is that you can give medicine for anti-anxiety purposes. They don't need to have a complete procedural sedation with all the other requirements that we'll discuss further to take off the anxiety and make this a much more comfortable procedure. Thinking about pain relief, we've already discussed the role of topical medicines, and there are medicines that are designed for uh, lacerations that are open, medicines that are uh, such as LET. There are medicines that are designed for intact skin, such as EMLA and Vapocoolant, which are very good for IV placements. There are mucous membrane medications, such as viscous lidocaine, which can numb up uh, for like lacerations that involve the lips. And of course, there's ophthalmic preparations as well. Again, we talked about when you're using an injection to use buffered lidocaine, to use a very small gauge needle to, give, to go very slowly. Another alternative is to apply a block so you can actually put the medicine away from the wound but manage to, uh, all the pain control. If they are in pain, you can use certainly parental medications like Ketorolac. You can use oral medications like Tylenol and Motrin. And you can certainly, if it's significant pain, consider right at this point using an uh, opioid such as morphine or fentanyl. One of the things that we've been using in our emergency department with great success are intranasal medications for anti-anxiety purposes. And we've been introducing intranasal fentanyl, which takes two to three minutes and does a wonderful job of controlling pain. The last thing I want to emphasize, the days of holding patients down so we can get through our procedures should be over. You may get through the procedure during that one ER visit, but you're going to take a child and you're going to make them have great anxiety about the medical system in the future. Indications. What are the indications for procedural sedation? It's really any procedure that causes pain or anxiety. So whether it's incision and drainage of an abscess, whether it's reduction of a fracture or dislocation, whether it's laceration repair, lumbar punctures for patients who have great anxiety, foreign body removal can be a great uh, use of procedural sedation. Placing things such as central lines or chest tubes are very important to use medication to both control pain and anxiety. Some patients may need it for other things, such as pick line placements or colonoscopies, bone marrow aspirations or thoracentesis. How did procedural sedation get started? If you go back to the 1980s and before that, the prevailing dogma was that neonates and even children really didn't experience pain the way that adults felt pain, and therefore would have procedures that could be quite painful, including surgery, and were given no pain control. Fortunately, there were doctors who disagreed with this and did research and demonstrated just that. In a landmark article that came out in 1987 in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Pain and Its Effects in the Human Neonate and Fetus, these doctors were able to definitively show that neonates do feel pain, which should be obvious to any parent who's ever seen their newborn child feel the heel prick of a blood draw or any other type of painful thing. Children clearly feel pain, and we have since this time demonstrated that not only do young children feel pain, but that the memory of this pain, conscious or unconscious, lasts with them and can affect them later on in life systems for maximizing patient safety. We're now going to transition and talk about patient safety systems. We're going to divide it into three categories. We'll talk about the pre-sedation assessment, we're going to talk about preparation for the sedation, and we're going to talk about monitoring. In the pre-sedation assessment, the first thing to consider is the past medical history. What type of airway reactivity do they have? Do they have an active URI or a history of asthma? Do they have a history of reflux? Are there issues related to obstructive sleep apnea? with cardiopulmonary disease, hepatic or renal disorders, which may affect the metabolism of the medications, and consideration of allergies and adverse reactions. All of these are going to go into considerations about what medications are going to be appropriate, and most importantly, is this patient a good candidate for a procedural sedation? The common classification that is used to decide whether a patient is a good candidate for sedation is known as the ASA Physical Status Classification. This divides patients into five categories. One is a normal healthy patient. 
Two is a patient who has a mild systemic disease. They have a systemic disease, which can include things like diabetes or asthma, but it is well controlled. Three is a patient with severe systemic disease. They may have a disease that is like cystic fibrosis, and they're having difficulty controlling their respiratory function associated with it. Four is a patient with a severe systemic disease that is considered a constant threat to life. And five is a patient who is moribund, who is not expected to survive without the procedure. The patients that we're going to focus on are in category one and two. What we know is that the majority of patients who show up in our emergency department who require a procedural sedation are going to be either ASA1 or ASA2. They're going to be patients who are appropriate for procedural sedations. They're going to be a smaller subset of patients who are ASA3. They have significant systemic diseases, and you're going to have to make a judgment about whether they are appropriate for procedural sedation. What we know about these ASA classes is that as your ASA class goes up, your risk of having an adverse event increases. In one study, they were able to demonstrate that it, your, the risk of an adverse event was about 9% for ASA1 classifications. Patients who fit ASA2 were around 23%. It's important when looking at this data that often what is considered an adverse event is hypoxia, something that can be typically avoided with proper preoxygenation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Your physical exam will give you other important key details to decide whether the patient is a good candidate and what considerations you need to have in mind. Related to the airway, you want to look at evidence of a short neck, macroglossia or enlarged tongue, microagnathia or a small jaw, such as a patient who has Pierre Robin, whether they have obstructive tonsillitis or limited neck mobility. The important thing to realize is depending on the agent that you're using, you're going to change the dynamics of their airway, and if they're already at a level where they may be slightly compromised, it can certainly increase. Fasting status is another area to consider. In the world of general anesthesia, the fasting status is very important, with patients typically asked to not have any food or drink after midnight the night before a procedure. Those are patients who are typically having elective procedures. When a patient shows up in the emergency department, these are not elective, but are typically considered emergent or urgent procedures. And so we look at the data slightly differently. So you need to consider the degree of urgency. Is this a procedure that is considered emergent, urgent, or just elective? And related to this, we need to think about the medications that we're going to use. Are we going to use a medication like ketamine, which has minimal blunting of the airway, or are we going to use other medications like fentanyl and Versed or propofol, which will affect both the airway and respiratory patterns? When we look at the general anesthesia literature, the first thing to keep in mind is that the process that the patients are going through is very different than those who are undergoing procedural sedation. First, in the general anesthesia world, they're often using inhalants, which are both noxious and cause emesis. The second thing is, is that they're performing laryngoscopy. They're taking a metal blade, sticking it back of the throat, and then taking a plastic tube and sticking that in their airway. Those are all procedures that increase the risk of a patient having emesis. Likewise, when the endotracheal tube is removed, that is also a procedure that can cause emesis. When we look at the general anesthesia literature, we can see that the overall risk of aspiration is about 1 in 2,500. However, when we look at the ASA1 classification patients, the overall risk is closer to 1 in 8,000. In the world of pediatric procedural sedation, which does not involve laryngoscopy, we see that the numbers are actually quite different. Of the many thousands of patients that have been studied from procedural sedation, there's actually only a history of two aspirations that have been reported in the literature, and both of those patients had actually fasted prior to the sedation. So after the review of thousands of patients across multiple emergency departments in the United States, the consensus is that procedural sedation may be safely administered to pediatric patients in the emergency department who have had recent oral intake. Discretion, of course, is the better part of valor. If you feel a patient has just eaten and comes in and requires a procedural sedation, waiting some time period, whether it's an hour or two, may be prudent. However, there is no specific guidelines that are given. 
The next thing that we're going to talk about is preparation for the procedural sedation. The main events that you are concerned about is respiratory depression, apnea, whether it's obstructive or central, and hypoxia. And we're going to talk about how to prepare for these events and more importantly, how to avoid them. The other type of events that are important to prepare for are emesis and having something available for suction, as well as hypotension, although this is a relatively rare event in pediatric procedural sedation. Having the right equipment is very important. The type of equipment that you want to have available and ready to use includes a bag mask ventilation system, oxygen, which can be administered via a face mask, nasal cannula, or blow-by, although I'll argue for using a face mask in the moment, and using that oxygen both for pre-oxygenation and supplemental oxygen during the actual procedure, having end-tidal CO2 monitoring, which we'll talk about more in a moment, and also having suction available should the patient vomit, and also having IV fluids available should those be necessary. There have been a number of studies that have been done that help us understand the value of pre-oxygenation. One of the first studies that was done was in 20 healthy adults who were undergoing a surgical procedure, and they were given a dose of succinylcholine or other paralytic agent, and they watched to see how far they would desaturate in one minute. So basically, taking a patient who was healthy, these patients had a baseline saturation around 96%, and for one minute, they did not breathe at all. And what they found is that on average, they dropped their saturations to 85%. And it's important to remember, these are patients who have been breathing room air, which is only 21% oxygen. In this study, they had some of the patients take three maximal inhalations, breathing deeply in and out three times. They had some of the patients wear a tight-fitting face mask with, a, with an oxygen reservoir. They had some patients wear a loose face mask. And they had some patients who received no pre-oxygenation. Once anesthesia was induced, they found that the patients who had had no pre-oxygenation performed, that they desaturated down to a little bit above 90% by two minutes. However, in the patients who had either the tight face mask or had done the three maximal inhalations, by three minutes, they were still satting 96% or higher, representing the notion that, once you've, that if you have pre-oxygenated, you have a lot longer time before somebody starts to have any significant desaturation. This is very important should a patient have an episode of laryngospasm or apnea that if they are pre-oxygenated, your time as a physician to have an intervention is much greater than those patients who are not pre-oxygenated. Another study very relevant for pediatrics looked at different age groups of children to see how long it would take for them to desaturate. All of these patients wore tight-fitting face masks in advance so they had the nitrogen washout and essentially had 100% oxygen available to them. In the children who were in the youngest age group, two days to six months, and on average, it took 96 seconds for them to reach a desaturation of 90%. The older age group, uh, who is the 11 to 18-year-olds, the average time was 382 seconds. In other words, for adolescents, if they've been properly pre-oxygenated, you may have six minutes or longer before they reach a significant desaturation, which means should they have an event that you have much longer time to respond to it appropriately. In general, the time difference from a patient who has an event who had prior to that just been breathing room air versus a patient who's been properly pre-oxygenated is a three to one time difference. So if a patient was gonna desaturate from room air in one minute, if they've been pre-oxygenated, you may have up to three minutes or more. Now we're gonna take a moment and talk about monitoring. The most important thing that you can do, of course, is to engage with your patient and have direct monitoring them, watching how they're doing. The second thing, is mechanical monitoring, and this involves monitoring in three different ways. You have ventilation monitoring, which is performed by capnography. You have oxygenation monitoring, which is typically done by pulse oximetry. And you have hemodynamics, which is by monitoring the heart rate and the blood pressure. 
I want to take a moment and look at this patient's monitoring record. Key things to note. If you look at the top line, you'll see a normal EKG rhythm. There's no change, there's no change in the rate, there's no change in anything else to indicate there's a problem. The second middle line looks at the oxygen saturation. It's a normal waveform, everything looks fine. The bottom line immediately flatlines and stays there. That's our capnography line. What that indicates is that this patient is having some sort of event where they are no longer having any ventilation. Why is this important? Well, we've just spent all this time looking at what happens to oxygenation during an event. Whether you have a minute or three minutes or six minutes, depending on your pre-oxygenation status, looking at the pulse oximeter does not tell you whether a patient is breathing. However, capnography in one second will immediately identify whether an event has occurred. And we'll go through that in detail. So what does capnography tell us? Well, first you have to realize a patient typically has a nasal cannula in place, which is measuring the carbon dioxide as it is breathed off. When a patient takes a breath in, the monitor will say nothing is happening because no CO2 is coming out. As the patient begins to exhale, you'll see the monitor begins to rise and it goes into this very typical waveform where you have a sharp slope up, a plateau phase, and then it comes off as the patient gets ready to take in their next breath. This is very important for a number of reasons. As we've just shown in the previous slide, if it flatlines, we know that there is no ventilation occurring, and it's your job to figure out what's going on with your patient. The second thing is for just monitoring the level of sedation, and we'll go through a number of those graphs to show you how this works. The first waveform that is demonstrated is a normal waveform that looks like the one that I've shown you on the previous slides. The second waveform pattern is hyperventilation. You can see that the patient is breathing quickly and that they're blowing out less CO2 by the height of the waveform. The next waveform represents bradypneic hypoventilation. This is what happens when you have an opioid on board. You begin to breathe slower, your ventilation pattern slows down, and you retain a little bit of CO2 during this process. The next one is hypopneic hypoventilation, which typically happens with sedative hypnotics such as Versed or midazolam. Finally, we have apnea. And as you can see at this point, you cannot distinguish apnea from obstruction from laryngospasm, but we'll talk about that in a moment. The important take-home message is that capnography provides early warning of potential or impending airway and respiratory adverse events that is wholly independent of the presence, absence, or the quantity of supplemental oxygen. To put it succinctly, there was a time when many people felt that you should not pre-oxygenate a patient prior to procedural sedation, because if they have an event, you want the hypoxia to indicate that this is the time to intervene. Our goal is to prevent that. We can pre-oxygenate our patients avoid hypoxia, and intervene well in advance of any adverse events occurring. The next thing I want to talk about is differentiating central apnea versus obstruction. So if your capnography goes flat, the first thing you want to check is make sure your equipment is working. Has the end tidal CO2 monitoring equipment come out of the nose? Are there mucus that is blocking it? Has it become disconnected from the wall? Is there some other reason why this has gone flat? If the equipment seems to be in working order and is flat, the next thing you need to decide is this patient having central apnea or is there obstruction? Well, what do you do? You look at the chest. If the chest wall is not moving, by definition, your patient has central apnea. If the chest wall is moving, indicating that they have respiratory effort, but you have a flat capnography reading, that is an indication that you have some sort of obstruction. The next question is, is this obstructive apnea or is this laryngospasm? And the way to differentiate that is with your airway maneuver. So by realigning the airway, doing a little bit of jaw thrust to help the patient along, does the patient begin to breathe? If they do begin to breathe, then what you've had is obstructive apnea, and you need to help the patient with their airway alignment. 
If they do not breathe with proper airway alignment, then what you have is laryngospasm, that despite the fact the patient is trying to breathe and has an airway that is properly aligned, they're trying to fight against closed vocal cords. Pharmacopoeia. Now we're going to talk about the pharmacopoeia for using procedural sedation. There are five categories of medications that we're going to discuss. We'll talk about sedative hypnotics. We'll talk about analgesics. We'll talk about disassociative medications, inhalation medications, and of course, reversal medications as well. Looking at the sedative hypnotics, there are a number of medications that are available to us. Classically, chloral hydrate was available as a medication that could be given whether PO or PR. Unfortunately, its availability is now much more limited as the company that used to make it no longer produces it. Midazolam is a wonderful medication that's in the benzodiazepine family that can be given PO, intranasal, or via the IV. The PO route, which is typically given as half to one milligram per kilo, we typically use three quarters of a milligram per kilogram, up to 15 milligrams, has wonderful effects on patients. It takes about 20 minutes to kick in and will probably help 85 to 90% of patients relax. The intranasal route, where we use a half a milligram per kilo, up to 10 milligrams, takes about two to three minutes to work. And I would say the efficacy of that is probably in the 90 to 95% range. The IV route, 0.1 milligram per kilogram, uh, up to two milligrams, typically takes one to two minutes to take effect. Diazepam is certainly available as well. Pentobarbital works very well for patients who require sedation but are not going to have a painful procedure such as a CT. In those cases, we're typically giving one to two milligrams per kilo as a starting dose and then adding up to six milligrams per kilo to get the patient to a nice relaxed state. Etominate can be used for procedural sedation. It works quite effectively, 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilo. But the important thing to realize, as fast as it comes on, is as fast as it comes off. So you'll typically only have two or three minutes for your procedure. Propofol is a wonderful sedative, typically given as one milligram per kilo for older patients, but needs to be given as one and a half to even two milligrams per kilo for younger patients to achieve sedation. It's important to remember with propofol that there is no pain control. And if you're gonna have a painful procedure, even though you can essentially make the patient unconscious, it's very important to use analgesics. As far as the analgesics, the two most important analgesics that we use in procedural sedation are fentanyl and morphine. Fentanyl is wonderful in terms of its fast onset and its fast offset. Morphine has much longer pain control, but also it's important to remember it may take five to 10 minutes for the actual pain control to kick in. So if a patient who's in severe pain right away, fentanyl is a good starting place, one to two micrograms per kilogram to get their pain under control and then consider using morphine afterwards. If you're doing a versed fentanyl sedation, it's important to remember how those two medications will affect the patient. With a versed, what you will find is that the patient will become unconscious before they become apneic. With fentanyl, it's the opposite. As you give more of the opioid, they will become apneic before they're unconscious. What does this mean? Well, it means if you've given enough of the fentanyl and they reach a point where they're become, having some apnea, you can actually touch the patient and ask them to take a deep breath, and they will. However, if they become apneic in the context of using your versed, they're unconscious before they're apneic, so you're going to have to control their airway. So as we're doing a versed fentanyl sedation, typically where I like to start is with my versed, two milligrams, my fentanyl, one to two mics per kilo, and then I'll give another one, two, three, even four mics per kilo of fentanyl to try to get good pain control. If there's still an anxiety component, I'll give more versed, and then come back to fentanyl as my main drug for trying to get them under control. The next class of medication is the disassociative medication of ketamine. Ketamine has been one of the most wonderful medications we've introduced to, for pediatric sedation. 
It's a very well-tolerated medication. It is virtually universally effective, and it is essentially very easy to use. A starting dose of one to two milligrams per kilo will bring a patient into a disassociative state. It's very important to talk with the family in advance of the procedural sedation so they know what to expect, that the patient will have a horizontal nystagmus and their eyes will dance back and forth, that while some patients are quiet, some patients are not. They may verbalize by moaning, they may respond to what we do by moaning louder. Some kids will actually talk out loud. Just let the families know in advance that there may be some verbalization so they're not surprised during these particular events. Ketamine is not a titratable drug. What you find is that the patient will disassociate and need another dose of the medication, typically a half a milligram per kilo, every five to six minutes after that. Once a patient has had two or three doses, you may be able to go longer and just watch the patient to see when they need more medication. Ketamine also has excellent pain control. By using just a quarter milligram per kilo, you can control pain without inducing disassociation. A couple of the concerns associated with ketamine is the risk of laryngospasm, which is estimated to be about one in 2,000. A couple of the things that we believe are associated with laryngospasm is the use of intramuscular ketamine, where you're typically giving four to five milligrams per kilo, which is very worthwhile for a patient who does not have an IV, but you need to understand that there is a risk associated with that. They're also at an increased risk of laryngospasm if they have active asthma, especially patients who are using rescue medications such as albuterol on a regular basis, or if they have an active URI. These are all events that you should consider whether you want to use a different agent. The other thing to know about ketamine is that it is a salalagogue. It will cause the patient to salivate more. It used to be that we'd use medications like atropine to dry up their mouth, but in general it's been felt not to have any effect on the sedation, and those medications are typically no longer used. The one case where I will consider using atropine is if I'm doing a repair inside of the mouth, such as a tongue laceration. In that event, you want to make sure to give your atropine at least 10 to 15 minutes in advance so that you have the anti-salalagog effect. The last thing to be aware of about ketamine is that there are some patients who can have what's known as an emergence response. They may wake up and it looks like they're having a nightmare. This is typically uncommon in the pediatric world, but is reported to be more common in the adult world typically giving Versed either at the time when they're waking up or if they have the actual response will blunt the emergence response. Nitrous oxide is a wonderful medication to use for procedures as well. It's easy to apply. You do not need an IV. It has anti-anxiety properties. It has amnestic properties, and it does have some analgesia control as well. Typically when giving it, you want to be administering it 50 to 70%. I have personally found that 70% is more effective, and this is also demonstrated in the literature. This can be used for all sorts of procedures. One of the very common ones to use it for is incision and drainage of abscesses. Even if the patient cries out a little bit during the procedure, the amnestic effects of the nitrous typically make it so that, they, that the procedure itself is very successful for them. It can also be used in fracture reductions with lidocaine used as a hematoma block. Finally are the reversal drugs. It's important to remember that two of the medications that we're talking about, the opioids and the benzodiazepines, can be reversed with naloxone or flumazenil. Typically, the goal is not to do a complete reversal of the sedation, which can induce a great deal of pain, but rather just give them enough of the medication so that they begin to breathe again. How to break laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is one of the events that should give you the most pause when thinking about your procedural sedation. There are six approaches that can be used for breaking laryngospasm. The first is the simplest. You can wait. Most laryngospasm will break on its own in 30 to 60 seconds. If you have a patient who's been properly pre-oxygenated, they may never drop their oxygenation below 100% during that time. The second thing to do is using positive pressure, putting a bag mask on and giving one to two breaths, or just using CPAP, which can often bring laryngospasm. Third way is using a complete dose of succinylcholine, typically one milligram per kilo. This will paralyze the patient, 
The airway will open, and you can now help breathe for them using the bag and mask. The fourth option is using low-dose succinylcholine, typically 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilo, which will help paralyze the vocal cords and cause them to open up, but will not paralyze the diaphragm. The fifth option is taking the patient deeper. By using propofol or Versed, you can actually bring the patient to a deeper level of sedation, which will cause the vocal cords to open up. You cannot give additional ketamine to bring a patient deeper into their sedation. The sixth option, which you should be aware of, is known as the laryngospasm notch. This is a maneuver that anesthesiologists use to break laryngospasm in a patient. I'm going to demonstrate that for you now. Take your thumbs and flick the bottom of your ears. Anteriorly, you should feel the mandible. Posteriorly, you should feel the condyle of the skull. What you want to do, using your thumbs, is do a jaw thrust, lifting the jaw forward, but at the same time, press inwards towards the brainstem. If you're doing that with me now, you should be feeling a little bit of pain and a little bit of nausea. That indicates that you're in the right location. It is not entirely clear why this mechanism works, but it is known to be very effective in the world of anesthesia. Thank you very much, and good luck with your procedural sedations. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.